Let me pray again before we start in the Scriptures. Father, we acknowledge humbly that though we can take in facts and knowledge, Lord, apart from your Spirit interacting with us, we don't gain truth in the way we need it. God, we ask that your Spirit would be at work this morning to open the eyes of our heart, as Paul says, that the truth of your word, word would be planted deeply within us, that it would produce fruit over time. God, we know there's no problem with your word or its content. We ask you to make it fruitful in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it wasn't long after the creation of the heavens and the earth, and God puts Adam and Eve on the earth, and they start having children. And we only get to Genesis 4, fourth chapter into the Bible, before we read about the first murder on the earth. And it's not just murder, it's fratricide. It's one brother killing another brother. That's the story of Cain and Abel. Very briefly, you remember the two brothers, the text says, they both offered offerings to God. And God accepted Abel's, but he didn't accept Cain's. And the text doesn't say why. But later in Hebrews in the New Testament, it does say that faith was the issue. Abel's offering was offered in faith. Cain's apparently was not. So Cain is ticked. He's embittered against his brother. He doesn't like the fact that God approved my brother, but he didn't approve me, and he's angry. And so God comes and he talks to him about this in verse 6, and he says, uh, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? You know, if we're out of sorts, most of the time it shows on our face, doesn't it? God says, hey, I can just look at you and you know something's amiss. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, all you have to do is do what you know is right. Do well, it'll be fine. You'll be accepted also. But he warns here, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is like a hungry beast right outside your door. He says, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. An embittered brother, God comes and warns him. And what does he do? How does he respond? Well, it says he rises up. He kills his brother. And God comes to him after the fact, and God curses him. And God casts him away from the dwelling of the rest of his family there. And he curses the ground that Cain would work on. So in this scenario, you have God coming to Cain and warning him. He says, temptation is right around the corner from you. It's right in front of you. You need to be aware of it. You need to master it. And he doesn't. He refuses the warning about the temptation directly in front of him. And what comes from that is murder and death and cursing, anything but life, anything but what Cain would have wanted. God warns him there's a temptation right around the corner. You've got to be aware of that. You've got to master it. If you don't, it's not going to be good. And this morning as we wrap up on the series we've been in, Pray Like This, out of Jesus' model prayer in Matthew 6, we come to that last line that has to do with temptation. God, keep us from temptation. That's where we plant this morning. So let me read the text again as we start. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. I am reading again from the ESV Starting at verse 9, Pray then, Jesus said like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. May your name be magnified as holy. 
your kingdom come. God, might your kingdom come in our hearts, lives of those around us. Eventually, Lord, might your kingdom come in the rule of your son Jesus across the earth. Might your will be done on earth as fully as it is in heaven. Might earth be like heaven. Jesus' model prayer, you remember, we start with God and God's things. And then he shifts to our personal needs. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread, the things that affect us today, directly in front of us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, that daily necessity of seeking forgiveness for, from God and giving forgiveness to those who have incurred debt against us. And then this morning, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me start by talking about something this text does not say, and then we'll look at what it does say. Uh, depending on what your pedigree is as far as the Bible you've grown up with or the Bible you like to read today, some of you know that I have not read from the ESV a phrase that's familiar to many of us. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's not in the ESV translation. It's not in the NIV either. It's included in the New American Standard and the Holman, but it's bracketed with the same explanation I'll read to you here in just a second from the ESV. It is included in the King James and the New King James translations. This is why the ESV does not include that closing phrase in their translation. They say in their marginal note, it is evidently a later scribal edition since the most reliable and oldest Greek manuscripts all lack these words, which is the reason why these words are omitted from most modern translations. They note, however, there is nothing theologically incorrect about the wording, and they give you a comparison. If you look at 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 13, that's similar wording to the close that's there in the New King James or King James Version of this, nor is it inappropriate to include these words in public prayers. The Bibles that include this as part of the text, <clears throat> excuse me, do so because they're based on another set of manuscripts and the ones that are routinely used for the modern translations. I'm not going to get into the whole issue of debate about is the King James 1611 version the only correct English Bible or not. You probably have opinions on that one way or the other. Uh, but there's a set of manuscripts, and scholars prefer one set or another, and it's based on that preference that you'll either see this included or not included. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you choose, if you recite this publicly, if you choose to include this last phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power, you do so in a long line of Christians throughout the ages of the church. That's fine. If you choose not to include this on the end of reciting this model prayer, you do so in concert with many Christians today. I do want to make clear when I say this, this brings a, a whole gamut of issues up about the reliability of the scriptures and and can we be confident that the Bibles we read today, that that's really what God said? There is, there is no comparison in any other ancient literature with what we have available for the Bible, the text of the Bible. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone in the Greek. So when we read our Bible, we just have very, very good copies, very good translations. When we say as a matter of faith or belief or doctrine... We believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Our, our statement online or, in, or on hard copy says, in the original autographs, 
We don't have original autographs, but we have very, very good copies. So we have a high degree of certainty that the scriptures we have is what exactly what God gave. Where there's a difference of opinion based on the manuscript variations, your Bibles today, any modern Bible, usually even a King James, include at least a marginal note to say something about this is a debated text or something along that line. If you're interested in following up on this, this is a book we as a church worked through years ago in Sunday school class, Philip Comfort's Essential Guide to Bible Versions gives a lot of information both on all the contested passages in the Bible as well as just how we got translations generally. So many of you, I know, have wondered why we haven't included that all along. That's why I'm teaching through the ESV, this series, the next series. I'm going to try the Holman uh, version as I, I try it. I've been teaching through the New American Standard for many years, and so I'm trying some of the newer ones, so bear with me as we do. So something that we're not talking about today and why. So to the text itself, does it seem odd to you to pray to God to not tempt you? Do those words on this line, uh, verse 13, does that sound odd? God, don't lead me into temptation. Does that imply that God would tempt us? Would God tempt us to sin? Would God tempt us to evil? Is that really what Jesus is saying? Is that a possibility? Uh, listen, I'll give a few examples here in Scripture in which God speaking through his human agents states a positive through a negative. And you know when we read our Bibles, we need to have our thinking caps on. We need to be aware of the ways, the idioms, or the phrases, the figures of speech the Bible uses to communicate truth. And I think this is one of those. So let me give you a couple other verses that state a positive through a negative. So, in Acts 12, verse 18, when Peter was released from prison, Luke says there was no small disturbance. That means there was a really big ruckus. He states a positive through a negative. And you'll see, if you read through Acts, you'll see this is standard fare for Luke. It's, it's understatement. Luke doesn't say something's big and huge. He says what it's not. But we understand the positive from a negative. Or if you look at John 6.37, you'll see the same thing. Jesus there says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I won't cast you out. Does that mean it's possible Jesus would cast us out? It's not. This is very similar later in John 10. Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd, and he says, I know my sheep, I call them by name, and he says, they can never perish, and no one can ever take them out of my hand. And the thought here in John 6 is a similar thought, but it's stated as a negative. I won't do this. Does that mean you might? No. You're kept. Those the Father gives me, I keep them. I'd never cast them out. So it's stating a positive through a negative. Revelation 3 verse 5 there is another example I'll let you look at. D.A. Carson in his book, The Sermon on the Mount, says this about the way God's communicating truth through verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but away from it, into righteousness, into situations where far from being tempted, we will be protected and therefore kept righteous, 
As the second clause of this petition expresses it, we will then be delivered from the evil one. So if Carson's right, and I think he is, Jesus is using a negative to express a positive. So we might say something like Psalm 23, verse 3. You know, there when David's thinking about God, Yahweh is his shepherd, he says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's a similar thought. In, in, the, uh, in Jesus' model prayer, it's stated as a negative. In Psalm 23, it's stated as a positive. Lord, would you keep me out of trouble? Would you keep me from those people and places in which I might fall to sin? Would you instead, Lord, keep me in the place where I can trust you and follow you, those righteous paths? That's the same thought here. In fact, you know, James 1.13 says this, if we're tempted to think, might God lead me into temptation or into evil or sin, James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. <clears throat> so we know Jesus is not saying it's possible that in some situation it's actually God tempting us. God doesn't tempt us. God never tempts us. God can't be tempted by evil, and he's not throwing evil in our path to tempt us either. So we're not praying to God with the thought that, gosh, God might actually lead me into evil or sin or temptation. Nope, it's exactly the opposite. So if you read this, you can think of Psalm 23.3. God, keep me in your paths of righteousness. Now, temptation is a way of life for you and I. This is not news to anyone. There are two primary directions, though, from which temptations come. One's external and one's internal. One's from outside forces. One is from inside desires. We'll start with the first, with outside or temptations from without. If you look in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, this is the passage of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And it says there in verse 2, for 40 days he was being tempted by the devil. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden faced a tree with fruit that was forbidden and a temptation. Best of circumstances here, Jesus, life on the earth, he faces temptation in the worst of circumstances. Forty days of fasting in a dry desert, barren wilderness. And the whole time he's there, he's facing temptations by Satan, by the tempter. For 40 days, it says. When the devil, verse 13, had ended every temptation, this wasn't one or two, this was anything the devil, Satan, could think of to tempt Jesus in that situation. He threw everything at him that he had. He faced every temptation. It says then, he departed. But even notice this. It says he departed until an opportune time. Jesus didn't just face temptation in his time in the wilderness, but it continued. Satan was strategically looking for opportunities to tempt Jesus to sin, the Son of God to sin. You see in Matthew 4, verse 3, the same thing. Satan there is called the tempter. Same in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. It's interesting that when the Son of God was on earth, as far as outside forces, Satan chose to tempt him himself. He didn't delegate this to some lesser demon. This was Satan himself at work to bring about the fall of the Son of God. If you read C.S. Lewis' 
uh, the screw tape letters. Uh, fiction, of course, and filled with irony, but Lewis was such a great study of human nature that as his fictional demons interact with each other about how to tempt mankind, you see yourself writ large there in his pages because it so deftly talks about what we're like and what we're subject to and the areas of pride or sexual temptation. It's in there. So you and I can face temptation from outside ourselves, from, if not Satan himself, from his demons. I think it's important to say, sometimes you'll talk to a Christian and every temptation they face is from the, is from the devil, it's from Satan. And I suspect for most of us, we're not strategic enough for Satan to be tempted by him or by his demons all the time. I think most of us aren't that strategic. And he's very smart. He's maximizing his energies and his opportunities. That we're tempted by outside forces, the devil, absolutely, through some of his demons, absolutely, it's a given. But I don't think that's where all, I don't think that's where most of our temptation comes from either. Most of our temptation, I think, comes from within. So if we want to be strategic in our thinking about who's providing the temptation and what to do about it, at some level, our response ends up being the same. But casting Satan out, that doesn't end our temptations. And rebuking the enemy, that doesn't end most of our temptations because I think most of our temptations are not from outside, they're from inside. That's the second direction you see there on your study sheet. May Brown, Rita May Brown said this, Lead me not into temptation, I can find the way myself. And that's, that's the bottom line. We don't need Satan. If Satan wasn't here on this earth, we would still face temptation because we have desires within us that lead us to temptation. Listen to James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Our own self-centered, self-serving desires lead us to temptation, James says. We don't have to have help to face temptation. We've got all the help for temptation we need inside our own fallen nature. It's a given. Our own sinful desires, James says. Same thing in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. These are internal impulses. These are desires within our own minds and within our own hearts. Satan doesn't have to be on the premises or on the property for us to be tempted. We've got plenty of fuel within our own desires. All the temptations in life that we could ever want to battle, they're already there. They're from within. Now, we face temptations really, in some ways, every moment of every waking day. Life is filled with temptations from either direction, outside temptations or from within. Let me mention just two of the big ones and then a few examples of some others, but two big ones. The first is there's a temptation not to forgive others. Now we talked specifically about forgiveness last week, but Carson says in his Sermon on the Mount, I I thought this was really helpful, he says this, the fact that the plea to avoid temptation is placed between the petition concerning forgiveness, that's in verse 12, and its further elucidation in verses 14 and following may possibly suggest that the temptation primarily in view 
is the temptation to be bitter. The temptation to maintain a veneer of true religion even while one's secret attitudes are bursting with the corruption of grapes gone sour. This also suits the dominant theme of this passage, verses 1 through 18, the description and overthrow of religious hypocrisy. So I think he's spot on here that this thing about temptation is sandwiched between texts on forgiveness. And this still looms for most of us as a huge, huge issue. Lord, I've sinned against you a little, but man, they sinned against me a lot. It's okay for you to forgive me, but I don't need to forgive them. Jesus says, no. You know, it, to the degree, back to what we talked about last week, our fellowship with God is hampered. It's hindered related to any unforgiveness we bear others. It is just poisonous for, hold, for us to hold on to an embittered attitude or thoughts or to continue replaying in our mind the way someone else harmed us or sinned against us. It's poisonous. And guys, we just end up being religious hypocrites if we're not willing to forgive others, which is, as Carson points out, that's the theme of this passage. Don't look like, don't live like the Pharisees. They're religious. They go to synagogue. They go to temple. They know the Torah. But they don't live the way God's called them to live. So we have to be willing to forgive. It's one of the major temptations you and I will face in life. It's almost constant. Someone else's sin against me is always greater than my sin against God. It's actually the opposite. Our sin before God is always the greater sin. You can listen to last week's teaching if you didn't get that. The other temptation specifically that I want to call out here is sexual temptation. This is just huge. It's huge for a couple of reasons. We live in a sex-saturated culture and time. <clears throat> this isn't absolutely unique for sure. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 about this. I'll get to that in just a second. But the, the times in which we live are just filled with opportunities for temptation in the arena of sex. And the other thing is, we are hardwired by God's design and creation as sexual beings. Our sex is not an accident that humans somehow happily discovered on our own. God made us for sex. We're sexual creatures by our software and by our hardware. We're wired for sex. But now we're in a culture in which everything's about sex. You know, something that has power has power to bless or power to curse. So dynamite, we can build roads and bridges, or we can kill people. It's the same stuff. It's how it's used, and that's true for our sexuality as well. I just love 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, how blunt and to the point Paul is in a culture that was actually quite a bit like ours in the city of Corinth. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Paul says, Paul's single, by the way. And he argues later in this passage, he wants to encourage Christians to dedicate their lives to singleness so that they can more fully serve Christ. So he's a single guy advocating singleness on one hand, and on the other hand saying, hey, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, most of us need to get married. We need to have a God-ordained, God-sanctioned sexual relationship in the place God meant it to be, in marriage. Paul's just blunt. This isn't a, a second-rate reason to get married. We don't want to uh, marry a person simply to use them 
But God's made a sexual creature. Sexual temptation is a given in this life. And so Paul says, hey guys, get married. Now even having said that, marriage doesn't end. And a regular, healthy, God-blessed sexual life in marriage does not end all sexual temptation. That's a given. But God says through Paul, it's one of the ways God means to address that temptation. So those are two huge ones. We face temptations, though, in every arena of life. We face temptations against contentment. Uh, you know, God's called us. He commands us to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And yet, which one of us doesn't, isn't tempted with those thoughts? It's not enough. It's not what I wanted. It's not where I wanted. It's not how I wanted. I can't be content. No, God says be content. We're tempted to discontent. We're tempted to use food and drink and drugs, legal or illegal, we're tempted to use things as God's substitutes. You know, we're made for God. And only God can fully satisfy our heart's needs for peace and joy and a sense of affirmation and contentment. And if we're not getting it from God, we face greater or more regular temptations to use things or to use other people to try to fill up the void in us that only God can. There's a regular temptation for God's substitutes. Uh, tempted defines our significance in the world's view of success. You know, how much money do I make? How big is my house? What kind of social status do I have? We're tempted to find significance in the way the world counts significance. But you know, God says our significance comes from Him. These are substitutes. They're temptations to something inferior, to second-rate options that, frankly, can never satisfy us anyway. They can never fill us up. We're tempted to feel good about ourselves at the expense of others. So we face multitudes of temptations. Pretty much every waking moment, you and I are going to face temptations. It's a way of life. Now, the fact that the temptations are here does not mean that we must sin. The fact that we face temptations from outside forces, from inside desires, does not actually mean that we have to sin. God says we don't. Now that we will is a given, but we don't have to. We don't have to. The key text on this is in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul's talking to that early church that looked a lot like our culture today and our church today. And he was reviewing for them some of the elements of the story of the Exodus, Israel coming out of Egypt, and the temptations they faced, and their failures. And he's using them as lessons for the Corinthians. And so he says to them, No temptation has overtake you but that which is common to man. Guys, what you're facing, these temptations, none of them are new. You know, on occasion we feel like we're being tempted with some kind of impossibility that no one else has experienced. There is nothing new under the sun. And the temptations you and I face today, they're the same ones that have been going around the block since our fall. Nothing new. What we experience in temptations, people, friends around us, people in the church, and going back further and further in time, it's all common. None of this is unusual. Whatever temptation you're facing, it's common. Other people have, other people are 
facing the, temp- the same temptation. This is not unique to any one of us. He goes on and says, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. Do you guys ever tell yourself or do you hear from someone else, maybe your child, uh, you know, I, I had to sin. I had no options. I had no choice. You know, it's sort of the lesser of two evils. I only had these choices left and both of them were sin. What was I supposed to do? I had to sin. And I'm thinking, well, actually, no. Because God can't lie and he knows the way things are. And he says there's not a single temptation we face in which we must sin. It doesn't exist. So there's never a situation in which we have to sin. I think what happens more often than not is we have not prepared for temptation ahead of time and we have gotten ourselves into situations in which there is apparently no way out because we have not wisely prepared for temptations. And then we say, gosh, I couldn't do anything but sin. God provides a way out. Let me mention four here. I'll run through these briefly. <clears throat> the Boy Scout motto is the first one, be prepared. Guys, we know, you know, temptations are here. They're with us. They're going to stay with us. They're a given. So we have no excuse for not preparing for temptation. It's going to come. In Daniel 1, verse 8, you remember Daniel was taken as a young man from Israel, taken to Babylon. And he knows, you know what? These guys aren't kosher. They don't follow Moses' commands about food and drink. And I'm going to be taken into the king's own place. I can't do this. I would sin against Yahweh by not keeping covenant faithfulness. Apparently, in the food laws, I can't do this. So what does it say of Daniel? He resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. So Daniel says, I'm in a bad place. Temptations are coming. What am I going to do? It just says he resolved. He made up his mind ahead of time. He drew a line figuratively in the sand and he said, I won't cross this. I won't go there. It's not an option. For you and I, many times, perhaps more often than not, we find ourselves in these situations in which we feel compromised because we simply didn't look ahead. Why did I go out with that group of kids? Why did I let myself go to this place? Why? It's too late. God expects us to look ahead, to be wise, the way Proverbs calls us to be wise, not naive. You know, if we're not reading the Scriptures, and I'll highlight this again in a minute, if we're not in the Scriptures, we're naive morally. We have to be in God's Word to know what's ahead. What does that look like? What does that sound like? So that I can be prepared. Daniel resolved that he wouldn't go there. So he cut off temptation because he'd already made up his mind. There's a line I will not cross. Many, if not most of us, have not drawn a line in the sand to say there are places I will not go. There are people or there are situations I will not engage. There are things that I know that are coming that I will not be tempted by because I refuse to go there. Preparation is a huge part of avoiding temptation. We have a lot of young guys and gals in our midst. Let me just mention a few of the ways this practically works out. Um, If you're dating someone or courting someone seriously, my wife's rule was stay vertical. You have no reason to be horizontal with someone you're not married with. Do you get the word picture? Okay. You don't get horizontal. You stay vertical. That's an easy one. 
If you're interested in someone and you think maybe, maybe they're the one God's got for me, but you're not sure where they're at spiritually, you know the thing to do is to tell them, you know what, I'm a committed Christian. I'm assuming you are a committed Christian. I'm a committed Christian. Where are you at spiritually? What shapes your worldview? Where do you think you're going? We don't have to worry that we're going to end up married to someone who's not spiritually committed to Christ if we're heading this off at the pass. Are we being thoughtful? Are we looking ahead? If you use social media, there's a huge temptation to feel that our significance comes by how many Facebook friends we have and whose business I know. Don't you feel terrible when you find out 30 minutes after it happened, 15 minutes later than all your friends, what someone did? Isn't that terrible? I just feel terrible when that happens. Facebook friends, my significance is tied to how wired, am, how wired in am I with everyone else on my social media? You know, because if I find about, out about it later than you do, I, that's old news. The telephone commercials make a joke about this. You know, 10 seconds ago, 5 seconds ago, your phone's too slow. Social media, there's a temptation to feel like significance is how many Facebook friends and how soon I know how much I know about anyone and everyone else. There's a temptation there. Uh, Related to those we go to school with, we work with, our neighbors and our friends, we know we're going to be sinned against, right? We know we're going to be tempted to sin in our relationships. So do we make up our mind? Do we pray in the morning? Lord, help me to be forgiving as I go through this day. Help me to speak of others only the way I would want them to speak of me. Help me to treat others only the way I would want them to treat me. You see, so much of this is a given. We know it's coming. Simply to be prepared is one of the major ways of avoiding temptation and sin. And let me just mention last two on that computers. You know, the Internet is this this fantastic tool. It's a great tool, and yet it's filled with temptation. Do we have a computer use policy? Do we use computer software that minimizes the temptation of adult sites? Or smartphones are the same thing. What are we doing to manage those temptations? We know they're there. It's a given. Are we prepared for them ahead of time? The second one is to be alert. It's to be alert. Years ago when I worked for a roofing company, every cup, every time we took a drink of water, On a hot roof, the cup, every one of them said, aware, alert, alive. You're in a high place. Accidents happen. You could fall off. Death is a step away. Are you aware? Are you alert? You'll be alive. There's this call for us to be alert. Alert. You see this in Matthew 26, verse 41. This is Jesus, Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, and he's there with his disciples, and he's going to go off by himself and pray, and he knows what's coming. And he knows they're going to face temptation. He's told Peter already, Peter, you're going to face temptation tonight. This is what's going to happen. He knows temptation is coming to his disciples, and he warns them. And this is what he says. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. This is also in Mark and Luke's gospel. You've got to be alert. Go back to Proverbs for just a second. The book of Proverbs was written to help us to live life successfully and wisely, and that requires moral intelligence. And in the book of Proverbs, someone who's naive, we sometimes use that word, we just mean someone who's young, and maybe they don't know something that'd be helpful yet, but in Proverbs, to be naive is to be morally culpable. 
God has given us His Word. We're supposed to be instructed. We're supposed to know the difference between good and evil. We're supposed to know about things like the temptations that are going to come when I walk down the city street. This might happen. We're supposed to know all of that. We're supposed to live alert to temptations. That's the call here, to be alert. We need to avoid the hypocrisy of asking God to keep us from temptation, but refuse to make provision for it ahead of time. The third one there is simply that we have help. You're not in this alone. You know, one of the things about temptation often is it's going in our mind, and we feel like no one else knows. And no one else is aware of the temptations I'm facing today. I'm in this on my own. Or as I face a temptation, I've got no help. No one else is aware of what I'm facing, what I'm dealing with. And so I have no help. And the book of Hebrews says, well, no, you you do have help. You have the best of help. So in Hebrews 2.18, we read of Jesus, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, to have the second member of the Trinity as your helper when you're being tempted, I'd say this is pretty good help. To have the one who spoke the worlds into existence as your helper and mine when we face temptation, I'd say there's not a problem with help being available in our moments of crises, in the face of our temptations. This says Jesus is ready to help. And in fact, in Hebrews 4.15 it says... Jesus as our high priest, the one sitting in heaven for us. And as a priest, he is our representative before God. It says there, he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is one who has been in every respect tempted like us, yet without sin. So Jesus knows what your temptation is like. He has been fully tempted. He knows what it sounds like or looks like or feels like, but he never caved. He didn't sin. And that's the one that is there to help us in our moments of crises and temptation. When you face yourself in a situation in which there's that temptation, you know, simply to say, Jesus, help me. Lord, help me. That's a good prayer. That's shortened to the point to the one who says he's there to help. We have help. We're not in it by ourselves. If no other human on earth knows what we're facing, Christ does. And he says he's there as our sympathetic high priest to be there for us and to help us. So when you're tempted, pray. The last is God's word. We have the truth of the scriptures that are there in part to keep us from temptation and sin. You have on your study sheet Psalm 119.9, this is a well-known verse along this line. How can a young man, how can any of us, keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Are we reading our Bibles? Does this sound familiar? Are Are we reading our Bibles? Are we meditating in our Bibles? Are we memorizing key passages that would be helpful to us when we face temptation in any form it might come? God's word is a hedge against temptation. Paul says in Ephesians 6, in the context of spiritual warfare, he talks about be strong in the Lord and in his might, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. He essentially describes a Roman soldier's armor and gear. 
And there's a sense in which every piece of that armor has to do eventually with God's Word, the truth of God's Word. He says specifically, uh, fasten on the belt of truth. God's Word is truth. Remember, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We've wrapped ourselves around the middle with God's Word, the truth. We're ready for action. He closes this section saying that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, an offensive weapon. So again, it would be hypocritical for us to pray for God to keep us from temptation if we're not reading His Word. He's already given us the means of avoiding all kinds of temptation and facing temptation when it comes by the truth in His Word. So are we making use of the Scriptures? Let me close this section with a verse from James 1, verse 12. Uh, You know, in the heat of temptation, especially if it's something that's been going on for a while, it can feel really, really good to just cave because the temptation's over. Don't you sometimes feel like the warfare's going on? You know, I know this is wrong, but I really want to do it, and I'm sort of tired of battling my own desires, and so I just cave, and I give in, and I sin, whatever it is, whatever that looks like. It could be anything. And I often get this immediate sense of relief just because the battle of the temptation is over, it's gone. And so maybe in the moment, that might feel like relief. The temptation's over because I caved, because I gave in, because I chose to sin. But this is the thing. It's just like Cain. It'll always produce death. That decision to sin, to cave, always sows the seeds of death. It can't be otherwise. But listen to what James says James 1, verse 12. Blessed, this could mean happy, successful. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And the word there in the Greek is temptation. When you're faced with these temptations, happy, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, it's not entirely clear what the rewards that are called crowns in the New Testament are, what exactly that'll look like. We're not sure. But I do know this. Uh, God designed the world and he designed us. So every pleasure you've ever enjoyed, sort of every moment of bliss or happiness or joy, every beautiful thing you've seen, whatever you've enjoyed, that was from God. God created that and he gave us the ability to enjoy So I know this, whatever this crown looks like, it'll be worth it. If God created us with the option, the ability to enjoy, and God says, guys, when you hold out, I'm going to honor you with this crown, this reward, it will be worth having. You'll want it. And when we look back from heaven at the temptations we faced and overcame, we will have no regrets for the sin we didn't commit. We'll only have regrets for sins we committed with this sense of a loss of reward. As Christians, we have eternal life. Jesus says we're in the hand, we're safe. We're going to heaven. But guys, we can lose rewards. And you're going to want them. 
So when you're feeling that temptation, instead of caving, do what Jesus did. You remember later in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured. That's what we're called to do. We have future joy promised. For joy set before us, we endure the temptation. We don't cave. There's reward for steadfastly working through those temptations. Let me wind down by going back to verse 9 where we started. This series, six weeks, started with verse 9 when Jesus said, pray like this. And I just want to shorten it to say, pray. Do you know all the study we've done? This is a brief study on prayer, right? Very brief, very narrow, very short. All this study, it's meaningless. Counts for nothing. If we don't pray. Jesus didn't say, if you pray, or if you think about it and and want to. He just said, when you do. It's a given. So, are we praying? Are we praying on our own? Are we praying for others? You remember, everything's plural here in this model prayer. We're always bringing others with us. Are we praying for others? Are we praying corporately with others? This isn't a call to some boring religious exercise. When we connect with God in prayer, guys, we're connected to the most exciting being in the universe, to the source of all life and all creativity and all peace and all joy. So all this stuff, it's meaningless if we're not praying. So do we pray? Are we praying? Are we praying for God's future kingdom? Are we praying about God's holiness? It's in God's... Holiness, it's when God is glorified that we are most fully blessed. Are we praying about God and His things first? Are we praying about our own and the needs of others that we're aware of? You know, one of the greatest ways to plug in relationally in the church is simply to pray for others. We use a prayer calendar. I tell you, when you've prayed for people, you feel knit to them. You feel connected to them. Are we praying with and for others? Are we praying to God getting the forgiveness He's given us in Christ every day because we sin every day? And are we forgiving others daily as we pray? Are we being hypocrites, going to God in prayer, thanking Him for the forgiveness He gives us and yet refusing to give others that same forgiveness we so desire? Are we praying to avoid temptation and sin? Are we praying, in Paul's words, this is in closing from Titus 2, are we praying to renounce ungodliness? and worldly passions? Are we praying to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age? Are we, while we do that, waiting for, praying about, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, all our temptations, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works? At the end of the day, if we're not praying, all the teaching in the world on prayer, it's meaningless. Father, we acknowledge humbly that we do not have what it takes to live life, to face temptation, to avoid sin, to honor you, to be ready for your kingdom, Lord, unless you're building our house, unless your spirit is at work within us. Lord, to convict us, to reprove us, to correct us, to plant the seed of truth in us so that we're aware of you and the things that concern you and your goodwill. Lord, would you stir us up to pray 
not because it's the right thing to do, but Lord, because we know and love you, because we're dissatisfied with having any less of you than is possible, because we're committed to loving our neighbors, Lord, and loving fellow members in the body of Christ as we pray with and for them as well. Lord Jesus, would you reproduce in us that part of your life on the earth which was simply fellowship with your Father through prayer. Help us to follow your example. Amen.